The giant hunk of meat has been a centerpiece of important meals for as long as people have existed. In modern America, there's no more impressive giant hunk of meat than the prime rib roast. I talked to John Brown, head chef at AJ's, and his sous chef, Josh Prentice, about prepping and cooking the beast, and headed into my own kitchen to whip up a couple of sauces for it. From KBBI in Homer, Alaska, my name's Jeff Lockwood, and it's time to check the pantry. has 13 ribs on each side. The five closest to the head are part of the chuck. They get a lot of work and their complex muscles, many small moving parts surrounded by sheaths of thick connective tissue. As one progresses down the cow, the number of muscles atop the rib gets smaller. Around ribs three through five, a distinct eye of fat just begins to appear inside the main central muscle, the longitissimus dorsi. Starting at rib six, it becomes much larger with lots of marbling and the fatty eye grows considerably. It's surrounded by a cat muscle, the spinalis dorsi, towards the front end of the cow, and picks up another small muscle, the serratus, or lip, along the way. This makes up the rib section. As the butcher moves toward the back end, the other muscles dwindle away, and the fatty eye disappears, until at rib 12, you're left with almost entirely longitissimus. After this point, you're in the short loin, home of the New York Strip, which is the posterior end of the longitissimus dorsi, and on the other side of the vertebrae, the tenderloin. The carcass is divided between the 12th and 13th ribs into the forequarter and the hindquarter. This is a division of considerable import. The size of the longitissimus on the ribeye side of this cut is used to calculate the amount of usable meat the cow will likely yield. And even more importantly for culinary purposes, this is where the measurements for grading beef are taken. Inspectors examine the marbling present here as well as the quality of the fat and the size of the fat cap and use that to decide which grade to give the meat. Beef grades, at least in the U.S., are heavily weighted toward one particular kind of beef, grain finished. While some form of grain finishing has often been used for high-quality beef throughout history, it took Gustavus Swift's invention of the feedlot in the railroad hub town of Chicago in the late 19th century to make it the standard by which beef is judged. It's worth noting that all cows are grass-fed, at least initially. They spend the first part of their life on pasture. They're moved to feedlots and fed grain for the period leading up to slaughter, often around six months. Standing around not doing much while eating a whole lot of food does to cows what it does to people. It makes them put on weight and fast. This fat shows up in part in thick deposits on the outside of the cow, but also critically within the muscles themselves, and most particularly within the longitissimus dorsi. Modern breeds of beef cattle are bred with an eye to maximizing this intramuscular fat, most famously, of course, in the Japanese Wagyu, which in its most expensive grades actually appears marbled with muscle instead of the other way around. The rib section of the cow, then, is the canvas on which so much of the culinary history of the last 150 years has been painted. 
The two most expensive and celebrated hunks of meat, the prime rib and its steak form, the ribeye, are found here. Vast acreages of pasture and cornfields, thousands of miles of railroad, millions of dollars of breeding and husbandry research, and whole towns and cities have been organized with the express purpose of ensuring that anyone who wants it, whenever they want it, as long as they can pay, can have a slice of ribs 6 through 12 from a cow. Let's talk about sauces, um, because prime rib is—it's about the rib, obviously. Um, it's about the meat, but it's also one of those things that because it's a giant piece of meat, <laughs> which is one way of cooking, certainly um, one that we could probably stand to move away from, except for celebratory occasions like we are currently in in the holidays. Sauce making is somewhat—I've always found it a little difficult in the home kitchen. It's not easy in a commercial kitchen, but it's pretty, it's a lot more simple because so many Western style sauces are based on stock and commercial kitchens, it's pretty easy to make stock because you're constantly breaking down chickens and, you know, other kind of poultry. You've always got scraps laying around. There's always stuff that you can put into a stock pot and make a stock that's going to be really high quality. It's less common in, uh, in the home kitchen. We just, we tend to get things that are already broken down a lot further. There's a lot less waste and scrap. In fact, the times when I have had the most of it at my house are when I've had to process a lot of chickens or a lot of poultry, animals that I've killed. Or, you know, if somebody gives me a bunch of game and there's bones and there's stuff like that, then it's pretty easy to make stock in those situations because you can make a whole bunch of it and then you can pressure can it or you can freeze it or you can do whatever. It's a lot easier and then it's always round. You know, in a commercial kitchen, you just, it's pretty easy to, to always have a, a bunch of stock handy. But it's not like that in the home kitchen. So, so I bought some. Now, actually, this is the first time I've bought this particular product. This is actually labeled stock. I usually buy the low sodium chicken broth and it's pretty good. It's not, it's not as good as, you know, the stuff that you make, but it's, it's solid enough, you know, for, for everyday things or if you just need it and you don't have it because, that's going to happen. And uh, so I just bought this. It's it's called stock. And I bought the unsalted kind because I am going to reduce it. I'm going to start out. The first thing that I'm going to do, I'll just tell you what we're going to do today. We're going to make two different sauces. The first sauce is actually going to be a fairly, fairly simple thing that doesn't even involve any sort of like meat stock. It's going to be a mushroom sauce. It'll still go really well with prime rib, but it will actually be 100% vegetarian. Uh, it'll still have butter and stuff. But if I was going to serve it with like a prime rib, I would add the juices from the roasting pan into the sauce and that would sort of marry it together with the prime rib, but you don't even have to do that. So the first one's going to be a mushroom sauce. We'll get to that in a little bit, or the second one will be a mushroom. The other one will be a mushroom sauce. The one we're going to talk about right now, it's going to be kind of a, a, a fairly standard sort of red wine brown sauce. This is kind of a base that you can use then to add different things to it to make it a little bit different of a sauce. In this particular case, what I'm going to add at the end is horseradish because horseradish and prime rib go, go together really well. But if you add the horseradish in the, in the form of this particular sauce, it'll be a mellower horseradish. So maybe people that aren't super into like the bite of real heavy horseradish, they might still enjoy this sauce. So I have this box of stock. We're gonna see how it goes. I tasted it and I tasted it in comparison with, 
with the chicken broth that I usually use. It's it's a lot thicker, it's a lot murkier looking, and it's got a, a much more intense flavor, even though there actually is no salt to it. So the second thing I'm gonna add is some red wine. And I'm gonna reduce these together, and that's this is gonna be sort of the base of the sauce. This is, uh, this is just a really simple, it's a box red wine that I like to drink with. I think it's really delicious. It's a Syrah-based blend. Um, it's not, I would generally want to avoid, for these purposes, I would generally stick with something in the Syrah end. You don't want a super tannic wine. And one of the reasons that we, that we reduce the wine with the stock is that the proteins in the stock actually help to soften and, and reduce the harshness of the tannins in wine. This is something I didn't know until somebody explained it to me, which is that if you reduce red wine by itself, you can do it with white wine, it's not a big deal because it doesn't have the heavy tannins, but I, it would happen to me a lot that I would reduce red wine and I would end up with a sauce that wasn't that great. You know, sometimes it would taste a little bitter, sometimes it would feel like almost metallic tasting, maybe sometimes like a sour kind of edge, and it was like, it was never really what I thought a red wine sauce was supposed to be, and then finally, it was pointed out that really that in order to make a good red wine sauce, you have to reduce the wine with some sort of protein because that's the only way to, to soften and take the harshness out of those uh, the tannins in red wine. So if you've ever been disappointed in your red wine sauce, try reducing it with some protein. Now I am also chopping mirepoix and I'm going to add this at, after this is all reduced is when I'm gonna add this mirepoix because I want this to give it some sort of very lighter aromatic flavors instead of getting sort of condensed in the stock. But I'm chopping them right now and I am using actually, instead of onions, I'm using shallots. Shallots, they have the oniony sort of bite to them without as much of the oniony sweetness. There is still a sweet component to them. They don't have that ability like an onion does to sometimes get a little bit cloying and I have carrots and I have celery and these are carrots from my garden. They're quite delicious. In some places, Homer, Alaska is not one of them. Uh, it's relatively easy to find demi-gloss, which is a very, very heavily reduced stock that you start out with a really intensely rich, intensely flavorful stock and you reduce it down until it literally is hard. Um, a, good, a good demi is almost like a hockey puck. And they are most useful because they will very frequently be added towards the end to give it an incredible mouthfeel. Gelatin, which is a major component in stock, is responsible for that like silky mouth coating where it just, it just feels so satisfying because it just like the whole stock and all of the flavors in it sort of coat your entire mouth. And, and it, it, it's a powerful thing. And it's, it's really the hallmark of top quality, modern Western style sauce is that very thick sort of luxurious mouthfeel. I wish that I had it. I have, made, I have made meat gloss before. It takes a long time. It's a lot of work. And I did not do it for here in part because one day we will go through the whole process of making meat gloss and making consomme, which is related uh, and making aspic, which is also related but they're an ordeal. They're not super difficult, they're just incredibly detail-oriented. And so it's understandable that you would not have them just laying around. So we're faced with the problem of thickening. Now traditionally, this was easily solved by using a roux. Escoffier, 
Carême, all the old school French guys that invented haute cuisine, they all used roux. And we still use them today. I mean, obviously I'm from Louisiana and, you know, making a roux is like the first step in just about anything. But the trouble with roux is that they can be heavy. The way that they were traditionally, that the heaviness was traditionally combated was by simmering for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. Even on like a bechamel, like, which is just a milk-based sauce that, you know, is basically like a gussied up, you know, white gravy. They get simmered for a long time. And what happens over time is that the protein, and you skim them at the same time. So what happens is the protein in the starch eventually gets thrown off and skimmed off. And that's the part that makes it feel heavy. And the actual starch, as it cooks, swells up so much that it bursts and it creates the silkiness of the sauce. But A, it takes a long time, and B, it's still always going to have, like, kind of a density to it. And sometimes you want that. And probably, you know, your, your turkey gravy that you're going to make at Thanksgiving or at Christmas or whatever, it's probably going to be made with a roux. And there's nothing wrong with roux. Roux are fantastic. They're extremely useful. They're fast. But for certain occasions, such as when you've just dropped $150 or more on a prime rib, you might want to go a little bit the extra mile. We're going to talk about thickening sauces without demi-gloss. It's hard. The first thing you, you kind of have to realize is that it's not going to be as thick as it will be with a demi or with a roux. You can use cornstarch, but cornstarch gives it that shiny sort of Chinese quality. It's great for Chinese food, but it's a little weird on top of a, uh, on top of a prime rib. It's just not what you sort of expect, you know, you don't see, you don't think about wanting that sort of glossiness. And we don't want to reduce this stock that far down either, because I mean, it is commercial stock and it's really, it's well-made, but there's always going to be like kind of a, a weirdness. The further down you get, the more you reduce it. In my experience, it, sooner or later you hit some funk. Okay. So the other thing that, that people do sometimes is they'll add gelatin to give their stock that mouthfeel, which in theory, and it, and it does work. It works. I don't love it just because gelatin does have kind of a characteristic flavor, especially when you use it in the quantities that you're going to use it for in something that's not super sweet, like a stock. Like it's easier to, it's easier to use commercial gelatin in sweeter environments because the sweetness kind of covers up the flavor a little bit. When you use it in savory environments, in my experience, it's also, it's always a little bit, you get a whiff of that sort of it's hard to describe again, you know, like almost gluey sort of flavor. The other thing I kind of think about when, you know, if you're just adding gelatin to like a regular stock, it's also still going to be fairly dilute. You know, the flavor is going to, the flavor is not going to be intense as like a really, as a, as a reduced stock. It works. And if I was going to do it, you know, if I wanted to use gelatin for something that, that was going to have a lot of flavors going on, like a lot of different things happening, then that would make sense as well. But in this case, it's, it, this is a very simple sauce. So what we're going to do is we're just going to accept the fact that our sauce will be slightly thinner. We're going to thicken it at the end with butter, cold butter. It won't be a super, super thick sauce, but it will be, it'll be thick enough that it'll coat each bite of the prime rib as we're eating. <laughs> All right, Josh, what are we doing here? We got, uh, we got prime rib, it looks like. Prime rib, yes. I'm gonna roast these off. Pretty sure this is just, you know, 
what's left from them deboning the ribs from it. It's got these little, you know, chunks of meat still stuck on there. Yeah, so you're just trying to make it look nice? Yeah. One solid piece of meat instead of a bunch of little weird hangy things? Mm-hmm. And nice what do you do and with even. the hangy things? Oh, we grind those up. Nice. That's prime burger grind right there. All right, now we got the bottom all trimmed up. Give it a flip. Look at all that fat. Yeah. Now we're gonna score it. Score it nice and good, like. What? Uh, what's the purpose of scoring it? Rendering the fat and getting a nice even roast into the center. What do you think about while you're while you're trimming a prime, Josh? I'm thinking about. I don't want to cut too far down into there and be cutting up into the meat. Just want to be, you know, scoring the fat. Right. Nice even cross section going there. Get in there and stab just the bejesus out of the bottom part of the fat. That's the fat cap down at the bottom end? Mm-hmm. You want that to render nicely, so you want to get in some nice deep cuts into it. Not too much that you're cutting into the meat, but you know, definitely poke lots of holes in that. So what do you guys do, two, two these days? Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's starting to slow down, so we'll only go through about two a day on prime nights. How many, uh, how many people does two, two primes feed? I mean, these are what, probably what, 12, 13 pounds each, something like that? Mm. Uh, these are probably around 15. 15? You can probably get, after cooking it, anywhere between 10 to 13, depending on what size servings you're giving, you know. Probably 10 to 13 per? 12 to 14 ounce pieces, you know. Yeah, okay. So if somebody was like getting one of these for Christmas, one nice size prime like that would feed 10 to... 10 to 15 people 10 easily. 15, yeah. yeah. So how far apart do you, do you like your scores? Because, you know, that seems, that seems like a very personal... Uh, I like Signature. to make yeah. I like to make like little one-inch squares. Okay. Yeah. Or diamonds, I guess. In this point, you don't like carve Josh into every prime rib. Oh, uh, <laughs> now you're giving away the secrets. Uh, there's a, about three inches in the middle of that lip that usually has more fat than the rest of it. So I like to cut it up pretty good, so it renders out, and that way. When you slice the whole thing off, it's not just a piece of blubber there. You know, it's a better meat to fat ratio. Right. You can serve the whole slice and it looks nice. You don't have to like lop off a big piece of, you know, just blubber. Scoring it like that just opens it up. So you say it helps you, it render. You're saying gummy fat is not like the thing that you most want to eat about a prime rib? <laughs> <laughs> you want a little bit, you know, yeah. just not, you know, huge pieces. Right. You know, prime rib is pretty fatty. Yeah. But that also helps keep that whole piece of fat from sliding down. A lot yeah. of times you don't score it, you go to cook it, and the whole thing just slides down in one piece, you know? Oh, yeah. All right, so we got these guys there, and you, you cook them in what, perforated hotel pans to let the juices drain out? Yeah, to give it a little lift so it's not sitting in its own okay. fat there. All right, we, got, we got a magical seasoning mixture. How much how much of this magical seasoning mixture can you talk about, Josh? Jamie's looking at him, so you know, it might be, <laughs> he might get murdered if he, if he reveals it's too much. It's not real big secrets. Uh, it's a lot of good dry rub recipes. Uh, it's all about what you like, you know? Make Basically, you know, regular dry rub base, you know, salt, pepper, all the other good stuff. You just want to be real nice and, you know, coating with it, real liberal. Yeah, and you're covering it pretty good. Mm-hmm. Want to get both sides. Just changed a bit over the years, our style of rub. What, what, how would you describe it now? Uh, mildly spicy, uh, a little bit of a smoky flavor. Are you still using the, uh, it doesn't look like you're using the liquid smoke anymore. Uh, tiny bit. Tiny bit. You all can't know though. I can smell it. I, it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't get. Not enough to make it really wet and tasty, you know. Just yeah. enough to like uh, impart a little flavor in there, the salt. And we pre-make it so it kind of dries out a little bit. Right. You know, after the first day. Gotcha. Definitely. I mean, uh, definitely wanted more like in the name dry rub, not like a wet spread all over your easy, steak. Yeah. Sorry. That's a yeah, easy smoke salt. If you ever want to do that, you know. Uh, 
the trick I found is just to toss some nice salt, a little bit of liquid smoke, lay yeah. it out, let it dry. Yeah. Good to go. Yeah, people get super snobby about liquid smoke, but literally all it is is like water that's... Good you know, ones. Yeah, and yeah, we yeah. talked about this before. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah they, it's water that you've captured smoke in like they basically smoke a pan of water <laughs> yeah yeah you look at the ingredients and all you want to see is water and smoke some have like some caramel colorings and flavorings and sugar that stuff kind of turns black right and uh yeah you just, I, I don't see a reason for it really filler i guess cheaper we got an oven preheated at 500. so you guys so there's there's so many different ways of cooking prime rib you know like there's the reverse sear where you cook it really slow for a really long time and then you finish it really hot and then there's like the people that just throw it in at you know 350 for however long. But you guys, at least when I worked here, you always started. I'm assuming you still do. You start out hot. Yeah, oh, we start out real hot uh, for about an hour, maybe longer if we're doing more than two, three or four. You know, just to get it to to get it starting to render. You can hear it sizzling. It's a nice color on the outside. And then we kind of back it off to 350. We start off with the oven full blast and back it off to 350. Another 30, 45 minutes. Again, depending on how many you have. Right. With two, 30, 45 minutes is usually pretty good. Yeah. Pull them out around 110 degrees. Between 100 and 110 is how we like to do it. And, and then, then so what is, what is the, uh, what, what range of, like you get the ends or are those a little more well done? And yeah. Then, and then the middle will wind up rare? Yeah. And actually, you know, if you look at it, there's the side that's more open, we call it the open end, and the side's more closed. It kind of looks like a New York strip, you know, it's different on the way down. That open side is usually from the end kind of medium and the closed side, that end cut, is gonna be a little bit closer to medium well. But then, so say somebody wants a, wants a well done, what do you do, just throw it on the grill for a minute? Yeah, we'll do that, or sometimes uh, people will just dunk it in the au jus, oh, yeah. depending on how done it is, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, a little bit on the flat top. Um, if I had a hot oven, that would be my choice that I might go to. And so when you're timing, like, um, how far ahead of time do you want, like, because you, you want to pull it at 110, obviously, then it's going to rest, right. and the temperature is going to come up. Yeah, 15, so about 20 how long, degrees. About how 15. long does it take uh, for that process to... 20 minutes, a good solid 20 to 30. I like to let it set at least 30 before we start cutting it. Okay, so the whole process then, from start to finish, like, if I was, you know, if you're doing this on Christmas Day, like, how much time are you going to... Give yourself a good two hours. Two you hours? Know, you know, I mean, resting longer than 30 certainly isn't going to hurt it, especially if you're keeping it, you know, just warm, not hot enough that it keeps cooking. Yeah. You know, just all it does is relax. You know, it's more tender, and when you cut it, uh, it holds more of the juices instead of them just running out, you know? Yeah. So when it's still hot, it's kind of under pressure in the center. If you cut it open when it's too hot. Right. Jesus. So an hour at an hour at, at as hot as your oven can go, mm -hmm. and then drop it to 350 until it hits 110. Yeah, which is about 30 minutes, especially okay. if you're doing one, you know. Yeah. In, in a home oven. Yeah. Uh, start checking it around 25 minutes, just and then go from there. Right. You know? Okay. And then pull it, let it rest, and you're good to go. Yeah. Yeah, a good 30 minute rest. I would do at home, you know. Sweet. What do you do with the with the juices and the rendered fat at the end of it? Do you like to kind of separate it out? On the first cook, you know, it's going to be a lot of fat in there. And so if you set it aside, you know, the fat will float to the top, cool it off, and you get the, the stuff from the bottom. Sometimes it's pretty salty. But uh, after, usually actually what we do is we'll transfer the brine from the pan we cooked it in into a clean pan, and we hold that hot, and those juices we'll use for au jus. 
they're not quite as salty, right. not as fatty. I gotcha. Have you ever tried the 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 really slow for a long time? I haven't yet, and I've been curious. You know, it's just this has been working for it for right. so long. Well, and I think it, it feels like it'd be kind of hard in a restaurant situation because it would take up the oven for you know yeah. ten hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We have one oven here, and we got a lot of stuff we got to push through it. So time is of the essence for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the results are good. Sweet. No, I do. <laughs> Obviously, uh, you know, all that's for, we're, we're cooking the entire primal, you know. Uh, if you're at home and you're only having four or five people and you're cooking, you can totally just do like a half one. You can buy those, you know. Oh, yeah. It's going to be nearly the cooking time. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Cut it down by quite a bit. But it would, but it would be a similar, you, well, similar you might, same process. You might, you might just instead of blasting it for an hour, it you might, might be thirty minutes, right? And then maybe checking it in fifteen once you turn it down. Yeah, you know? yeah. and it, you'll hear it, you'll smell it. You know, open up the oven, check it out. You get the nice brown, then turn it down. It does smell. If it's brown, turn it down. <laughs> <laughs> is that is that the official? I just came up with that. Just made it up right here. <laughs> the birth it is of, now. The birth of a meme. Josh got that down. Okay. <laughs> now I think we can start thinking about making our mushroom sauce. Now the mushroom sauce we're going to thicken in a slightly different way. The mushroom sauce, we're going to puree our mushrooms. We're going to puree some of the mushrooms, not all of them. Now, I am personally of the opinion that you should always use two different kinds of mushrooms, at least, in a mushroom sauce. If you do happen to have some lovely wild mushrooms, by all means, make your mushroom sauce out of just one. But I like to use dried mushrooms. Specifically, I'm using dried shiitakes because you have to steep them. And when you steep them, you get a beautiful mushroom liquid which will be the basis of the liquid portion of this sauce. For these guys, first, and I'm also using white buttons, just plain old regular white button mushrooms, and I roasted them. As I've mentioned before on this show, I always roast my, well, not always, but I try to always roast my white buttons before I use them. They're really delicious that way. Before I roasted them this time, I popped off the stems and I put those in the water with the dried shiitakes because with the dried shiitakes, they're really easy to use. You just get a bowl or get a container and you take hot boiling water and pour them over the dried shiitakes. Cover your container, walk away. 45 minutes to an hour later, you come back. You have to cut off the stems because the stems never quite get usable. They're always kind of dry. So now I've got my shiitakes and I'm just trimming them into some julienne. We're going to cook them further in some butter with the mirepoix. And some of them will be reserved. At the end of this one, we will garnish the end dish with some sautéed mushrooms. And my red wine and my stock are currently merrily bubbling away. I'm going to let them reduce by about half. I don't like to go too much further than that um, with commercial stock. And it's in... In case I didn't mention it, it's about an equal part wine to stock. So I saved a few shiitakes out of the julienne for, uh, for garnish. The rest I just sort of gave another couple of rough chops across the pile since we're gonna we're gonna puree these in the sauce. And that was me just straining the mushroom water because I've still got the stems. Still got the stems for my white buttons. They were still in there. I'm gonna saute the stems too in the liquid. And then we'll puree those. Now, you know, you could let that butter brown, and then you would have brown butter in this sauce. 
You know, one of the things about sauce making is that once you sort of master a few basic principles, you can figure out ways to infuse just about any kind of flavor into just about any kind of sauce. And I also have, I've got some white wine here that I'm going to use once my big pot of mushrooms starts to brown and starts to give up the last of their juices, then I'm going to add some white wine to them and simmer them in that for a little bit. And that'll give us another flavor to play off of, something acidic that will really help to, to lighten up and brighten up the flavor. Something that you're constantly sort of thinking about in sauce making is how to layer different flavors together. What you're almost kind of doing is taking the original flavor of whatever the original thing in your sauce is, breaking it apart and recombining it to make something that is still recognizably the same thing, but that's also new. We're hitting multiple kinds of flavor notes from these mushrooms. Like right now I'm cutting up the mushrooms that I, that I roasted earlier. So these are gonna have, a and these are just button mushrooms. So these are gonna have a different flavor profile than the shiitakes. And they're gonna be a little different than the button mushroom stems that didn't get roasted, you know, that are just getting a little bit of a light saute. But when we add these flavors all together, then you get multiple kinds of mushroom. Sauce making looks super wasteful because, you know, I'm starting out with this big pile of mushrooms and by the end of it, I'm gonna have a couple of cups of liquid. You kind of look at it and you're like, what? You know, you really turned all that into that? But then you taste the liquid and the flavor is so, so intense that all of a sudden you go, oh, I've extracted everything that's, well, not everything, but almost everything. I've extracted so many of the good qualities and there's very little left over after that. You know, most of what's gonna be left over is like, it's all this stuff we can't even digest anyway. Sauce making is also where your strainer will come in very handy. In fact, multiple strainers. Strainers are, they're funny, you know, they're, they're, they're maybe the most under, under appreciated tool in the kitchen you know nobody gets excited about strainers but there's actually there's a difference between good strainers and bad strainers and if you've ever had to try to try to work around a strainer where the holes were too big or where the holes were too small for what you're doing you're just like oh no this is terrible because it turns out that really minor differences make make life so much easier with with and without strainers they matter for the texture one thing that you know it's funny in the mustard episode they were making fun of me for not having a Vitamix, you know. Well, I mean, not making fun of me. It's not, it's a $500 mixer. Like, there's no shame in not having one of those. But I do have a, I do have a pretty nice food processor from my days in commercial kitchens. And uh, this one, unfortunately, food processors for sauce making are not the best. They just don't, they don't make things as fine. I could dump all of this stuff into, you know, a really nice high-end, super powerful blender, turn it on and walk it away, walk away, and by the end of it, I'd come back and I'd pour it through a super, super fine strainer, and I'd be left with nothing but this, like, unbelievably silky liquid that I could then throw my butter into right before I was ready to serve it and come out with this gorgeous, amazing thing. Unfortunately, because I don't have a super powerful blender, um, I got to use my food processor, which is a good food processor, but it doesn't pulverize as fine. So I'm not going to be as creamy and amazing and delicious. And that's just how it is, you know, but I'm from cook to cook. I'm telling you, nobody at the end will really care unless they really know. You'll know, but it's okay. The important thing is that you're, you're doing something, you're making something delicious for the people that you love which is the difference between cooking at home and cooking in a restaurant because the people sitting in there in the restaurant, they don't really care that you love them, even though you kind of do.
They're just like, you know, this sauce isn't really as silky as the guy down the street. Let's go down to the guy down the street, because the guy down the street has the Vitamix and you don't. How many primes have you cooked in your life? Oh, my God. It's hard to say. <laughs> Definitely in the thousands, you know. No, I did work at a restaurant in Georgia that we did quite a few, six or seven a day. Wow. An uh, Alto Sham. Tell me about that, because I'm actually, I'm actually dying to know, because I'd love to know more about that kind of like commercial cooking. Well, it's a, it's a device that they, they, they've designed specifically to cook prime rib. And it's just an oven with a sealed door, glass door, and it has a big coil around it to make it hot. And it's kind of a gentle heat. Uh-huh. You know, it's uh, supposedly, you know, you get like a 10% more yield out of it. A lot of people like them. My problems with it is it comes out kind of kind of gray. Like on the outside, like it yeah. doesn't have a good crust? Yeah, it doesn't crust at all, you know, because so, it's, it's kind of, you know, still real wet. I feel like part of that 10% really is fat that doesn't get rendered. Oh, right, <laughs> You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, well, we were talking about that, you know, like why you why you started pretty hot at the beginning is to render some of that fat. Right. As opposed to, you know, right. having the chunky bubble. And I gum. like having that, 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 that browned outside, you know. I think, yeah. I think it adds a lot, you know, a little bit of a... Caramelization. So know. at that place, at that place, you weren't really roasting it at high heat at all. No. no. Oh, so it was just all put them in there, and they'd sit in there for hours. What uh, <laughs> what grade of meat did you use? I'm I'm not 100. percent I was like 20 years old. I was just getting into it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I would imagine not better than choice, possibly. You know, possibly select, but I think probably choice. Yeah, because you guys use use prime. We Although, use prime ages. Well, that's you know, people are always like, oh, it's prime rib, so it has to be prime. Like, no, that's just the <laughs> term that they use. We're roasting a big, you know, whole ribeye. Yeah, well, I was actually, I was reading up on it, and, and the the prime rib as a cut has been in existence for way longer than the USDA grading system. Ah, okay. Yeah, and that's why they called it that, because it was, you know, it's beforehand. like the prime thing on the cow. Yeah, that's the funny thing about the grades, is they all sound good, you know? <laughs> well, I don't know, there's like, once prime, you get down to like can or grade. Well, there are 10, there are 10, but most people only deal with the top three. You know? Yeah, yeah, I don't think, you, I think you can't utility even. utility is not, you know, probably sounded too good. Yeah, can or grade is my favorite. Can or, is that above or below utility? I think it's below utility, actually. That's, nice. That's like, the only thing you can do is with, with canner grade is put it in chunky beef stew, you know? <laughs> <laughs> You're using boneless. Do you have a lot yeah. of experience cooking bone in? I would say a ton. Uh, for a while, we were getting, you know, a good deal on uh, the bone-in prime. But actually, I prefer to uh, cut that off and make those beef ribs. Oh, yeah? You know? Yeah, yeah and just rather then, than try to serve it, serve it on. I know? gotcha. It looks great, you know? And some people say it imparts a lot of flavor. I don't really notice a huge difference when I've had it. And you pay for all that bone, that price per pound. And some of those bones are huge. But it's popular now, you know, the bone ends, you know, all the big steakhouses have the tomahawk ribeyes. And yeah. it, looks, it looks great on the plate, you know. But they're also charging you pay for it, 85, you 90 bucks for it. Well, what, what are the differences? I mean, they do look great, you know. So yeah. And a lot of people get them for that reason, you yeah. know, because they're, they're putting it as a... Uh, as a centerpiece on the holiday table, you know, sure. so like how, how is cooking a bone in going to be different than cooking a boneless? Possibly a longer cook time. You're going to be limited in how you can slice it. Yeah. You know, you're going to have to go with those bones, you know, I've, you know, the, the other thing, it before you serve it, the other thing I've seen people do is, uh, is, is they usually have the butcher do it is bone it out before they cook it. Well, the butcher will cut the bones off and then they'll tie them back on. Ah, and and the the easy and then at the end you know when it's the, they bring it out you know to the table with the bones and everybody oozes and ahs and go right. oh that's amazing and then, <laughs> and then they take it back and then they just cut the string and they take it off and then they just slice it normally and then they serve the ribs separately although you know the cool thing about that way is I think uh, 
I think usually before they tie it back on, they'll they'll season it. You know, so like the meat right at the bottom, right at the base of the bones will be seasoned. All right, so let's talk about timing a little bit. I know we talked sure. about it. We talked about it at AJ's a little bit, but maybe we can go a little further in depth because you know a lot of people aren't necessarily going to have the full on standing rib roast. Right. There's what two to seven bones that a that a rib roast can be, something like that. And then if it's just one bone, then it's just a ribeye. Is, is what I what I've understood. But you guys always do the full size ones, right? Yeah, always whole primals. Yeah. yeah. How much? How long? How much less time do you think you, you'd want to spend at like five hundred for like a half size roast? I probably think about thirty minutes would be pretty good. Yeah. You know. Again, yeah. you know, uh, we listen for the sizzle. Use your nose, smell it. You know, starts rolling, and uh, I'd probably check it at twenty. Just in case, you know, some ovens are sometimes a little different than others. What's the ideal internal temperature to turn it down? Because you, you just pretty much, I mean, at this point, you know, you've been doing it long enough. You just go for an hour, turn it down. Well, and pretty much. Good. It depends. You know, if we have more in there, you know, if I'm doing four right. than two, it definitely takes longer for it to get that sizzle going, you know. So you're pretty much on the outside. You're pretty much totally going by the browning on the outside and you're yeah. not worrying too much about the internal temperature for when to turn it down. Yeah. What's the, the difference going to be between... Like, are you still going to pull a smaller roast out at 110? Yeah. Or are you going to go a little less or a little more? You might. I mean, it depends on what you like, too. You know, if you're going for, for a nice kind of, uh, you know, that center to be to be rare on a smaller one, I think it's uh, probably going to have a little less increase in temperature because there's not as much mass. Right. So it might come out about, it'll probably go up, you know, 10 degrees, 15, so yeah. 25, right? I think it's pretty good. Sometimes we pull ours, you know, like at a hundred, but we're going to hold those for a while too, you know? Right. Yeah. And actually we do have an auto sham, but I don't use it to cook. I just use it to hold. Right. It's perfect for that because I turn it down. Yeah. What do you set it at to, to hold? Uh, it's usually about 130, you know, even though technically it should be 140. It just, I don't want to cook them to 140, you know? Yeah, exactly. Because then you're going to have medium well. Even if we don't turn it on, like once you put all that hot stuff in there and I put, we put potatoes in there and stuff too. Yeah. You know, uh, it's well insulated enough yeah, that it's, it's going to hold. It's totally sealed, and so it stays warm, like a like a catering cambro wood or something. You know? Right. So, have you ever uh, have you have you done much with with dry aging? Because that's all the rage these days. You I've know? not done it myself. Yeah. You know? um, we've we've purchased some. Rod purchased it. I, I definitely have some interest in it. Is it yeah. so? How would you how would you describe the difference between a dry aged prime and and a regular wet aged? Uh, you're going to have a little more kind of a funkier, like cheesy almost kind of flavors, you know, uh-huh. depending on how long it's, it's done, the longer you go, the more it's going to be more like a, like kind of a blue cheese smell and taste right. going on. And, uh, it does tenderize it quite a bit. You know? When you were buying it, were you buying it, uh, already trimmed or did it come already trimmed or did you have to trim all the aging parts off? Trimmed. Okay. I know, I know I've seen you guys have done uh, uh, the Wagyu steaks and stuff, but yeah, have you ever had a whole, like, Wagyu prime? No. I can't imagine how much that would cost. Oh, it'd be so rich. Yeah, I know. Yeah, you can't uh, eat very much of that stuff. Yeah, you definitely want a smaller slice. Yeah, the prices and stuff is get pretty crazy. A small end of a, a primary roast, I believe it was, like... Three and a half, four pounds, something like that, and they spent close to four hundred dollars. You know, <laughs> seriously? Yeah. Wow. But the marbling on it, the picture, you know, looked looked amazing. Oh yeah. I just, I guess, I just don't like beef that much. <laughs> yeah, well, it seems like a bit much. You know, I mean, something definitely to, to maybe try once. But I mean, I can see spending four hundred bucks on a prosciutto, you know, or like a hamon iberico. You know, I got the uh, just the American wagyu, some of their the, their top of the line stuff, and. 
For the difference in price, you know, just regular USDA Prime ribeye is a way better deal, in my opinion. I mean, there was definitely a difference, and it definitely was very, very rich and buttery. You know, it had a lot of flavor, but you know, three times the price. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's got to be. It's got to be pretty good to be worth that kind of money. Yeah, I think a lot of people just do it to say that they have. You know. So let's talk. Since since prime rib is the uh, is the ribeye cut, we might as well talk a little bit about ribeyes. Sure. Because. Uh, they're part of the same. I mean, it's the same thing. That's, yeah, that's one of our. We sell a lot of ribeyes. Yeah. I feel like ribeye is probably the most popular steak cut. Definitely in, here in Homer. Yeah, because you guys, you guys do ribeyes New York's sirloins fillet, yep. mm-hmm. and ribeyes number one. When I think of ribeyes, I always think of my dad because he always ate ribeyes because he liked his steak well done, and ribeyes like the only steak that you can eat well done and have it not be yeah shoe leather. Yeah, New York strip really. Uh, kind of one of my favorites. And That's think, my favorite. I think a lot of people have been turned off of it because they go to cheaper places that there's an end on the New York Strip, you know, that has that vein in it. It's not as good, you know. And if you don't do something besides steaks with that, I, there's a lot of places that buy specifically just that, you know, pre-cut. And it's just the vein end. And just to be. Because it's super cheap. Right. You know, and I think a lot of people have gotten those and think, well, I don't really like New York Strips, but it's kind of, you know, it's definitely fattier than the filet. Yeah. You know, a little more flavor, but not quite as fatty as a ribeye. Right. Know? Sometimes I have people complain, you know, because we buy prime. like, well, it was so fatty. And I was like, well, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a prime ribeye. There is a lot of fat. You yeah. Know? And are they, but, you know, I feel like most of the time they're, they're actually reacting to the, to the, the, like the fat cap as opposed to the fat inside the meat. Like they don't really notice the fat inside the meat. They're right. just like, look at all this fat out here. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. We trim ours pretty, pretty good. You know, I don't leave the, the, we take the lip off. Right. But, and that's where a lot of the fat is on a ribeye. Yeah. You know? And then all the rest of it's in the meat. But they, they eat it in the meat yeah. and they don't even notice. They're just like, yeah. wow, this is delicious. But people like that with pork, too. It's like, man, but the fat's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and, and on that ribeye, you know, on the open end, you get that big that big eye of fat that goes in the middle. Right. You know, and it gets smaller and smaller and smaller as it goes to the closed end. Yeah. You know, it just kind of depends on, on what you like and how you're cooking it, too. You know, I like to go at least mid-rare. Have it rendered. You know? Yeah, a lot of people do. A lot of people do say that because I and I think that's part of the reason why I, why I kind of prefer New York strips to to uh, ribeyes is because I actually like rare yeah. more than I like medium I rare. I would take a, 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 but, a, rib, a rare New York over a rare ribeye, or yeah. you know that that uh, that that what I call the, the the closed end of a ribeye is getting closer to looking like a New York strip. You know. So I'm going to add my white wine. Just about a cup of white wine. And this is, a, this is, again, this is just a cheap box wine. It's a, this one is a Pinot Grigio. Again, don't use something really heavy and oaky like a Chardonnay. It's just not going to work as well. It's going to, it's going to taste like vanilla. You don't want that in your mushroom sauce. You want... You're looking for the acidity. You're not looking for any other flavors. I'm just gonna reduce this pretty briefly. Just sort of let the mushroom flavor sort of permeate the wine. And then I will bust out my Cuisinart and go to town. And one thing I should note is that we haven't added any salt. Salt is something that in general, particularly in the early stages of sauce making, don't add it. If it's the right amount now, by the time you reduce everything, it's gonna be so salty you can't eat it. So keep the salt until the reduction steps are done. Once you get to the end where you're assembling the final sauce, then you can start 
you know, start busting out the salt. Okay, my red wine and stock is now reduced by pretty close to half. Just gonna look at it in on a spoon and it's considerably thicker. It's still, we're gonna reduce it a little bit further shortly, but I'm actually gonna add a little bit more wine to it before we do, because after you cook the wine for a while, you keep the structure, but you drive off some of the, some of the whininess some of the aromatics. And so in order to get those back, we'll add those at the next stop, which is gonna be sauteing my mirepoix and then adding this to that, adding a little touch more wine and then beginning to reduce just a little bit more. So that is uh, it's definitely not, <laughs> you wouldn't taste it and be like, wow, that's delicious because we haven't finished with the sauce. And so now I've got my mushrooms uh, in my Cuisinart and we just gotta puree those up. Now the other key ingredient in the sauce maker's arsenal is the tammy or drum sieve. I do actually have one, but I'm not going to use it today because I'm just going to just going to use a regular strainer and a spoon and mash this puree into it. And this is what you did in the old days when you didn't have a Vitamix. It's a lot faster in a drum sieve, but I didn't get mine out because I want to. I want to feel the pain of you guys that don't have one. Keeps me honest. You're basically cutting the bits through the metal mesh and it creates a very small, a smaller puree. Takes a little while, just gotta work it. And in the end though, what you wind up with is a little tiny bit of liquid down at the bottom that's very thick and that's very intensely flavored. And then what's left in the sieve is all the mushy bits that don't taste like anything. So now I'm scraping the bottom to get all the little bits off. That's one of the nice things about the real powerful blenders is you can, you get everything really, really finely chopped and then uh, more of it will pass through here and more of the stuff that will pass through will be, will be actually contributing to the final flavor. You know, I just tasted the stuff that's left behind and it's not very distinguished. There's a slight mushroom flavor to it but mostly it tastes kind of neutral. In fact, what it actually has is a little bit of that like sour kind of flavor that, you know, mushrooms can kind of have. And then I took a little bite of the pureed stuff and it's much more, much, much more forward. It's much more, you know, hello, I'm a mushroom. And there's less of that kind of sour edge to it. So that's basically my thickener at this point. Now I will make, I will start to assemble both of these sauces. And we will begin with what else? Butter. A generous knob of butter in each and don't start with too much butter because at the end we're going to add some butter. Got my mirepoix ready to go. It always sort of amuses me when you when you read histories of uh, you know particularly French cooking and French restaurants in in, in particular. <laughs> they always say something like you know in the in the 60s chefs really tried to lighten their cuisine by using much more butter and cream instead of Instead of the old way of thickening stocks with, with roux, you know, they, they shifted to thickening stocks with, in different ways, you know, including, including just reductions and also using butter and cream. In the States, we typically think, oh, oh, they're lightening things. That means that they're making it, you know, less fatty, less sort of theoretically unhealthy. When in fact, it means that they're adding more butter and more cream. And you actually, um, I haven't talked about it, but we might as well mention it because uh, reduced cream is an extremely useful uh, sauce 
thickener. I think we've talked about it before, um, particularly in whichever episode it was that we made Subi's sauce, which is an onion and cream sauce. We talked about uh, how useful reduced cream can be in thickening a sauce. So you can actually use it in this. Um, it is it is easier to get a reliably thick sauce. Personally, I don't think cream and beef are natural friends. <laughs> Although horseradish cream works pretty well, but I think in the in our case we're making a horseradish sauce and it's going to be better anyway. You know, it's it's kind of a taste thing. I'd rather have butter than cream for the most part. There's certain times when I think the, the additional the additional thickness and the less flavor of a cream would be good. In this case, I'm just gonna use butter because I think it's gonna be better for both of these. So we're just gonna reduce or sweat this mirepoix and I've got one in, in each each pot. We're just gonna sweat this for a few minutes to get the, the shallots nice and, everything nice and sweated um, and just starting to get sweet. So then I'm gonna add my chopped up mushrooms, my button mushrooms from the, uh, the roasting pan are gonna go into the mushroom sauce and I'll saute those for a little bit. And I've still, I've, I've only used about half of those for this because again, these are gonna get strained out. We're gonna strain this whole thing. After we add the mushroom liquid and a little bit more wine, we're gonna strain the whole thing and some herbs. And for the beef sauce or the red wine sauce, I'm just letting the, we're just gonna go with the mirepoix and then I'm gonna add a little bit of thyme and some a little more red wine and we're just going to let that one reduce just a little bit just until it's a nice thickness and a nice flavor i've added a pinch of salt to each of these mirepoix because now we're in the now we're in the real part where we're building the flavor and we want the flavor to start to come through both of these sauces are going to get strained one more time and then after they get strained that is when they will get their final garnish you know what actually i'm going to go ahead and peel this horseradish right now because i am going to simmer the peels of the horseradish into the sauce to give it just a bit of the horseradish flavor. Horseradish, once you start cooking horseradish, the, the pungency rapidly disappears, but it still retains some of that, you know, characteristic horseradish flavor. So I want to just capture a little, a little bit of that in, in the sauce. So there's my red wine and a little bit of thyme, because thyme, red wine, beef, they're all magical together, but not very much, just a little pinch. And that's dried thyme. If I was doing this in the summer, I'd be using my fresh thyme. You can totally use fresh thyme if you have any, if you grow it inside your house or whatever. So I've thrown in my chopped up white buttons into the mushroom sauce. And let that go for just a minute. And give it one more splash of white wine. And add my mushroom water. I've still got my pureed mushrooms are still set aside. I haven't added that yet. Those will go in last. And for the mushroom sauce, I'm also going to add thyme because mushrooms and thyme are also magical together. And I'm gonna add a pinch of cayenne pepper to give it a little pizzazz. Oh, oh yeah. I just took a whiff of that red wine sauce and now, it's, and now it smells like a sauce. Before, it just was kind of like some indifferent, non-lively red wine with like a slight beefy taste. And now I just took a whiff of it now that it had the mirepoix. Now it's got a little salt. 
now that it's got a little brighter red wine, now it smells like something that is going to taste good. It's coming together a little bit. Oh yeah, they both smell really good. Put in my horseradish trimmings into that wine sauce. Give it a little pungency. So for the horseradish, you can grate it, which is great for, for like a horseradish cream sauce. Grating is fantastic. In this case, I think it'll look a little nicer if we julienne it. It'll also give it a slightly different horseradish character. Instead of being so pervasively horseradishy, you will instead get bits of intense horseradish when you bite into one of the julienne pieces. And then also some less intense sort of backgroundy horseradish. So you'll get a lot of a lot of different flavors, which is nice in something like you know, when you're accompanying something like a prime rib where, I mean, it's pretty much gonna be the same, you know, the whole way through, unless you get like a particularly fatty piece, particularly crunchy end piece. Like, you know, once you're, once you're in the middle part of the prime rib, it's all about the same. So it's nice for the sauce to have a little bit of contrast. Not great horseradish. I think it's Hungarian. <laughs> That's how it is sometimes. Maybe next year I can grow, I'll try, start growing horseradish. I know it's possible. Lori Jenkins had some growing in her garlic farm. She showed it to me and I agreed it was beautiful. Should have got some of that because <laughs> this is pretty grim. Whatever. So I'm just gonna let these guys reduce a little bit further and then they're both gonna get strained. The mushroom uh, will get strained into the container that I caught my puree in because I want the puree to be the second to last thing that goes in there. The last thing in both of these sauces is butter and specifically knobs of cold butter that you add off the heat right before you're ready to serve it. Um, generous quantities of butter. When people say restaurant kitchens use a lot of butter, this is really what they mean. The reason that so many restaurant sauces are so rich and so thick and so unctuous is because they get finished with a big knob of butter. In, my, in the case of this, I'm probably gonna use about four tablespoons in each one and these are, I'm probably gonna wind up with maybe, I don't know, how much liquid? I haven't strained it yet, so I'm not exactly sure, but two and a half cups of liquid maybe, most. Now, one thing I do wanna mention, especially since Thanksgiving is, uh, I, think, I think the show is gonna air before Thanksgiving. The other really awesome way to thicken a sauce right at the end, which I have done, well, I've, I've done it with liver, but I've never done it with, I was actually, while I was getting ready to do this show, there's a really great book that's all about sauce making called Sauces by a guy named James Peterson. And it is like sauce school. It is as rigorous as you could possibly get. Like they make all, every sauce that you've ever heard of and even mo and a lot of them that you've never even thought of. But he does, he talks about, because I've used, like I say, I've used liver, pureed liver before to, to bind a sauce at the end. And it's fantastic because liver is a really good emulsifier. It's a really good thickener. What he says that you should really do is use, uh, is mix a liver with like chicken liver or whatever with the equal weight in butter, puree those things together and use that. And I got to say, that sounds friggin' amazing. And I'm definitely going to try it. He actually recommended it, it, recommends it in the course of where he's talking about making giblet gravy like the, you know, you would eat for Thanksgiving. He says, giblet gravy is great. He says, it's awesome. But he says, if you really want to, if you really want to make it unbelievable, take the livers out, puree them with equal amounts of butter and add that right at the end, right after you take it off the heat and you will get something that is ridiculous. And liver on its own works really well. So I can say 
I can thoroughly endorse, even though I have not tried it yet, I can imagine that liver pureed with butter would just be sensational. But chicken liver in either one of these sauces would be kind of weird. It would actually work pretty well with the mushroom sauce. I just don't know how well it would work with the beef. Although liver's pretty neutral. <laughs> That's sort of a funny thing to say, but it is true in a, in a sense. So anyway, these guys, they're pretty much done. Um, they just need to reduce and then they'll get strained. I will bring them back to a nice heat and I will add cold butter until I've hit the consistency that I want. The butter, the important thing with the butter is it needs to remain emulsified because it's going to, it thickens the sauce that way. It, you, you just can't overheat it once, it's, once that's happened. And you're, when, when you do add your butter, add it all at once because that cools down the sauce enough so that the butter won't break. But I really think we're there. So I am going to turn the stove off. And like I say, garnish at the last minute after the butter goes in, I'm gonna add the little julienne horseradishes. You can garnish at the end with even more little pieces of julienne horseradish if you're plating the dish. Um, or you can just leave them in the, you know, if you're using a gravy boat, which gravy boats are awesome for holiday meal kind of things. The mushroom sauce will get garnished with some sliced, with the, the remainder of the sliced shiitakes and the sliced button mushrooms that I have. And either one of these sauces would be awesome with a nice piece of prime rib. And one thing I should say before we go is that if you get these to this point where they're reduced and you haven't added the butter, you can keep them in the fridge for as long as you want. Well, not as long as you want, but... And then when it comes time to actually make the sauce, when it's the holiday and you're ready to go, all you do, heat it up a little bit. Once it gets nice and, you know, warm, add your, add your butter, add your garnishes, and you're good to go. You can make this stuff ahead of time, totally, just up until the last step. The butter's gotta go in right before you finish. And that's all there is to it. There's a lot, well, there's a lot to sauce making, but that's a start. Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's hosted by Jeff Lockwood. My guests today were John Brown and Josh Prentice. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10, Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Quatuor Ebain. This is the fifth episode of the fall 2019 season of Check the Pantry. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI public radio website at kbbi.org support to help produce programs like this.
Thank you. 